0: If you've been paying attention, you've likely heard something about gut health and why zoning in on your gut health is so darn important. Improved skin, and here's the big one, reduced bloating. Head to myeq.com and use code SUSTAINABLE for 15% off Equilibria's microbiome defense and so much more. That's myeq.com and use code SUSTAINABLE at checkout for 15% off site-wide today. Well, hello there and welcome back. My name is Stephanie Safarian, and you are listening to episode 183 of the Sustainable Minimalist Podcast. On today's show, we are making the case for a circular economic model, as opposed to, of course, our linear one, that closes the loop so that nothing is wasted. It's estimated that the transition to circularity around the globe can be achieved by 2030, and it would lead to $4.5 trillion worth of economic growth. If this happens, it could mean the biggest transformation of production and consumption since the first industrial revolution 250 years ago. My guest today is entrepreneur, sustainability expert, and author Ron Gonin. Ron argues that circularity is not just crucial for the planet— Circularity also holds immense business opportunity. And so Ron is here to discuss the major takeaways from his new book called The Waste-Free World, How the Circular Economy Will Take Less, Make More, and Save the Planet. Now, really quick, before we jump into the interview, a quick note for safety's sake that Ron is recording in New York City and there will be sirens on his audio track today. There will be some sirens, there will be some... I don't know, some forklifts. So if you are driving or if you're out for a walk with your headphones on, know that it may very well be this podcast track. Ron, I'm so excited to have you on today. How are you?
1: I'm doing well. Thank you. How are you doing?
0: I'm so well. The sun is shining here in Massachusetts, so it's a great day. Before we get into your new book, The Waste Free World, introduce yourself to my listeners. I know you have a quite extensive professional history. Maybe give us your 30-second introduction to Ron Gonan.
1: Sure. My uh, entire career has been focused on the uh, intersection between maximizing financial returns and social impact. And I've had the opportunity to do that in uh, management consulting uh, as an entrepreneur, as a government official, and now someone who uh, runs an investment firm. Uh, More specifically, uh, prior to starting Closed Loop Partners, the investment firm I currently Uh, run in 2014. I was the Deputy Commissioner for Sanitation, Recycling, and Sustainability in the Bloomberg Administration. Uh, I was a role created uh, for me by the the mayor to be able to come in and reimagine and rebuild New York City's Sanitation Department uh, with a focus on uh, recycling and circular economy. And uh, prior to that, I served as an adjunct professor at uh, Columbia Business School. Uh, I've uh, founded two companies, one in the Recycling industry, one in the in the solar space, and um, very early on out of college, worked at uh, worked in management consulting. So that's a little bit of my uh, professional background. On a personal note, I live on the Upper West Side of New York City uh, with uh, my wife and and two kids.
0: Well, I'm so glad you mentioned your role in Mayor Bloomberg's administration. I'm definitely going to ask you about your. Experience, maybe a better word would be fight <laughs> to get styrofoam banned in the city. We'll talk about that later. But before we talk about circularity and how on earth a circular economy could potentially be feasible, you do mention in the book that consumers, you and I, and everybody who buys stuff, we're not benefiting from a single use society because we're paying for the disposal of these single-use products. Can you break that down for me a little bit more?
1: Sure. Unfortunately, for the past 50 years, uh, there's been a a hoax that's been uh, perpetuated and perpetrated on us as as citizens, which is the following. You can buy a product, and if it's either not recyclable or you don't want to recycle it, no problem, just put it in the garbage, and it disappears. And there's no financial consequence to you or your home. Uh, and then you can just go to the store and, and keep buying more stuff. And that if you do want to recycle, you should maybe feel good about yourself because it's the right thing to do. But there's no connection to it having any financial benefit for you or your uh, household. And, and in fact, even though recycling, yes, you should feel good about it. It, it may actually cost you money or cost your community money. And, That is a hoax. In reality, what takes place is whatever you don't put in your recycling container or whatever can't be recycled and your municipality needs to pick up in the garbage, it has to go to the landfill and the transportation to the landfill and the disposal of that uh, trash in a landfill is paid for by taxpayer dollars that are are hidden in our tax bill. And this concept that waste just disappears or it's uh, managed at no cost to us is uh, is a hoax, and it's a it's a concept directly connected to billions in tax dollars that that we're paying every year. That's kind of hidden and buried in our tax bill.
0: Hmm, that's so interesting. We are literally paying <laughs> for the disposal of our single use product. I never thought of it in that way before, but it makes total sense. I would
1: to even be more specific, like in New York City we spend about $400 million a year disposing of waste in landfills located in Pennsylvania, Ohio, and South Carolina. Uh, Fortunately, in the Bloomberg administration, we built the most robust recycling infrastructure in the United States. And so that number continues to come down, and it came way down in the Bloomberg administration. But in New York City, there's still hundreds of thousands of tons that get sent to landfill every year. And if you look at the United States, it's in the billions of dollars of taxpayer money that's spent every year putting material on landfill. And that's money that could go back to taxpayers in the form of a tax cut. It could be used for teachers, police, fire to build infrastructure. Instead, it's literally just tax money being used to throw products and packaging in a hole.
0: Hmm. One aspect to your book, Waste-Free World, that really fascinated me was the fact that you outlined how the notion of single-use disposable product and packaging was kind of, not kind of, was marketed to us. It was in the form of advertising campaigns. And you argue that now, these days in 2021, we are hooked on the throwaway economy. What do you mean by this?
1: Sure. So that gets back to what I was talking about earlier regarding a hoax. And so one of the things that I discuss in the book is that if you look at marketing and advertising pre-1950 in the United States, it was focused on two concepts. First, it was focused on quality over quantity. There was no concept of status being associated with how much stuff you had. Status was really associated with the quality of the product you were buying, the quality of your clothes, the material that was being used to make your clothes, the, the quality of a piece of machinery you were buying or an appliance that it was high quality and it was going to last. That's what was marketed to us as the highest form of status. And the other thing that was marketed to us was that recycling was a patriotic duty because at the time, the extraction of natural resources was incredibly expensive. And it came from parts of the world where it's politically unstable or we had no uh, relationships. And so recycling was a way for our country to grow its economy in a cost-effective way. You continually reuse these resources. So those were the two messages that we got pre-1950 in the United States. Quality is the highest form of status, not quantity, not how much stuff you buy, and that recycling is a patriotic duty. Post-1950, what we began to be marketed was status, is, is that quantity is the highest form of status. The more things you could buy is how society would determine whether or not you were successful. And that recycling was was something that was no longer necessary. You could just buy all this stuff and, and get rid of it. And this marketing wasn't derived because that's the best way for our economy to function or is the best thing for the environment or the best thing for the community, or actually the best thing for our families emotionally or psychologically. That marketing came from a, a nefarious uh, way for certain industries to convince us to to buy more of their products without their having to be responsible for what happens to it at the end of its life.
0: Hmm. So your argument then is that the solution to the single-use disposable problem would be a closed loop or a circular economy. Before we get into like how on earth we could transition from a linear one to a circular one, Define the concept of circularity for my listeners, for somebody who's never heard of that before.
1: In defining a circular economy, let me just take a moment and define a linear economy, which is what we operate under today. A linear economy is where in order to manufacture a product, you first have to extract a natural resource. Petroleum for plastic uh, or for metal timber for paper products. You then design products to use that uh, commodity one time. And once that product has been used that one time, it's then supposed to be disposed of in a landfill. Uh, Sometimes it gets left in nature, unfortunately. And then you start that process over again. And that type of process has a lot of embedded costs. Every time you buy something, you're paying the cost of extraction of natural resource. And then You're also paying for the disposal of a landfill. And that linear system was designed to be in the best financial interest of the extractive industries, oil and gas, mining, and the landfill industry. It wasn't designed to be in the best interest of us as consumers or citizens or our communities. So what's the alternative? How do we fix that? We fix that by building what we call a a closed loop system or circular economy where you're using... um, Material science to develop new types of materials in a lab that don't require uh, natural resource extraction. You're investing in product design to devine, design products that can be fixed, refurbished, or recycled. You're designing advanced collection and recycling systems to be able to collect these products and either recycle them into new products or uh, be able to refurbish them and get them out into the market with the goal of no longer having to extract natural resources for the manufacturing of products or dispose of those products in a landfill. And that type of circular system will protect our natural resources and improve our environment. It will also significantly reduce costs uh, in the system for consumers and taxpayers.
0: Yeah, the concept of circularity has obvious benefits for our planet (laughs) that you so aptly uh, laid out. And you touched on the fact that consumers will also benefit with regard to reduced cost and perhaps hopefully even better quality products. Are there any other ways in which everyone can profit from a circular economy? Like what else can we all get from it?
1: Well, the benefits are, uh, there, there are there are multiple benefits to the circular economy. So the most obvious ones are you're going to reduce cost in the system because you're reducing extraction uh, cost of natural resources. You're developing supply chains that no longer have waste in them. Uh, and you're avoiding the cost of, of landfill disposal. So those are the most obvious economic benefits. There's other economic benefits that come along with that. First and foremost are a lot of local jobs that get created. The recycling industry in the United States already employs hundreds of thousands of people, but you have large parts of the United States where there is no recycling infrastructure. There is no manufacturing infrastructure that can take recycled uh, commodities and turn them into new products. And so if we stop relying on the extraction of natural resources in politically unstable parts of the world that then need to be shipped to another part of the world to be manufactured into a product that then shipped to the United States and instead focus on how do we use advanced material science and product design and recycling systems to develop materials in the United States, manufacture them in the United States, collect them after they're used in the United States and turn them back into uh, products in the United States. We're actually going to create a very, very robust uh, local and resilient economy.
0: I want to shift gears after the break and talk to you about how on earth we can replace our linear economy with a circular one after a quick word from this week's sponsor. The Sustainable Minimalist Podcast is supported by Real Paper. The average American family uses three rolls of toilet paper per week, but there are big problems with conventional paper. Before it was toilet paper, it was a tree, and standing trees are cut down for our wiping needs every single day. Enter real paper, which offers a 100% bamboo solution. I appreciate that real paper is strong yet soft. And I also love that an entire month's supply arrives at my doorstep in completely plastic-free packaging. And as an intentional consumer, I feel good knowing that every roll of real paper purchased helps fund access to clean toilets for those in need. Ordering is as easy as heading to realpaper.com, choosing how often you want your tree-free toilet paper delivered, and entering code sustainable at checkout for 25% off your first order. That's R-E-E-L Paper.com and be sure to use code sustainable at checkout for 25% off. And we're back with Ron Gonin, author of the new book, Waste Free World: How the Circular Economy Will Take Less, Make More, and Save the Planet. Ron, I really want to talk to you about. The probability of circularity taking over. And the single most impactful part of your book for me was when you discussed your years-long fight, years, multiple years of Of fighting when you were New York City's deputy commissioner for sanitation, and you were fighting with the Dart Container Corporation as you and Mayor Bloomberg and the administration sought to ban the sale of styrofoam in the city. You encountered, and I don't even think I have them all listed here, but you encountered disinformation campaigns, the creation of lobbying alliances, there were court battles <laughs> over years. And I'm saying all this because I'm curious, if you encountered all this to ban just one disposable product in just one American city, a major city, but just one city, is the concept of the circular economy actually feasible in the large scale?
1: Yes. Uh, at the end of the day, although we had to deal with uh, a number of disinformation campaigns. And so it was, it was a challenging experience. But but the net result is that we banned Styrofoam in New York City. And so we were able to be successful in that. And I think every time you, in a progressive movement, win a uh, major battle like that, especially in a place as large as New York City, it, it makes the future battles easier and uh, and you know, I, I was glad to have the opportunity in my life to, to be part of that uh, movement in, in New York City to, to ban styrofoam. Uh, and so I, I'm very optimistic about the development of a circular economy for, for one important reason major companies are starting to recognize that a circular economy will reduce costs and increase margins for them. Uh, I think sometimes movements end up reaching a tipping point for different reasons than what you thought would uh, cause the tipping point. And that's okay. That That's okay. Whatever it takes to uh, trigger that tipping point is, is, um, is less relevant than the tipping point actually being achieved. So I'm very optimistic about the growth of, uh, Circular economy, and, and we at Closed Loop Partners are investing in and have invested in some really breakthrough technologies and super innovative companies that are doing great and and scaling, and, and I cover a number of of those companies in in the book.
0: Hmm. You do a great job of covering a lot of very innovative companies doing circularity right in your book. And as the host of this podcast, I have been fortunate to interview some really forward thinking <laughs> CEOs and founders of companies who buy into the notion of circularity. But I can imagine that those in power in the fossil fuels industry, the oil and gas industry, they are not a fan of circularity and they have immense financial power to fight back. Do you have any thoughts on this essentially David and Goliath battle of the little guys against these big major players who have been so powerful for so long?
1: I think the cause of the the tipping point that I mentioned a few minutes ago in terms of major consumer goods companies recognizing that a circular economy will actually reduce costs and increase margins for them, along with helping them achieve their environmental goals, pushing off regulation, meeting the interests of certain consumers. But at the core, I think they're actually recognizing that a circular economy will will reduce uh, costs. I, there's this interesting phenomenon, I think, that takes place in our economy where a lot of uh, consumers think that Coke and PepsiCo and P&G and Unilever and Nestle are packaging companies or in the plastics business. They're not. They they don't own any packaging companies. They don't own any plastic companies. They're in the product delivery business, and they're more than happy to sell you their product without the packaging. A packaging is is cost for them, Um, and and they're starting to recognize that, and so they're starting to try to innovate to meet consumer demand of less packaging, more sustainable packaging, because really at the heart of it is actually a recognition of their own self-interest in doing that, which is they can increase margins. And then there's obviously the additional benefits that they're also trying to achieve of meeting their environmental goals. And there are certain consumer segments that are very interested in this. That, that movement among major consumer goods companies is, is influencing this tipping point because now you don't have the major chemical companies versus, just the Greenpeace or the NRDCs of of the world or local environmental advocates. Now it's those chemical companies versus some very large consumer goods companies that are as influential or even more influential who are trying to change their business models. And and that's one of the reasons why they're really the leaders of of the tipping point. Now, the other interesting phenomenon that's taking place uh, in, in the chemicals space as it relates to plastic is you're seeing a major split where there's some chemical companies that are saying there's a new world order. We need to listen to what the Unilevers and the PNGs and the Cokes and the Pepsis and the Nestle's are asking for They're asking for base materials that do not involve the extraction of natural resources. We either need to innovate and figure out ways to provide our customer with that, or we're going to lose our customer. And then you have other companies in the in the chemical space that are fighting tooth and nail to maintain this legacy and antiquated uh, business model. And so there's a lot of change uh, upon us, and it makes for a very exciting time and a time in which I think uh, we'll look back on as really the the beginning of the tipping point.
0: You're right. This is an exciting time. It's a new time. And I know my listeners would love to help support this transition, but they likely don't know where to start or how to help. Do you have any ideas for the average listener listening right now who wants to support circularity?
1: Sure. I'll I'll provide a couple of opportunities. Um, one on just the everyday household product level. Uh, and then at a, at a uh, more policy focused uh, level. So first on the household level, there's a number of products available now on the market that the more you engage with those products, the more they're able to grow and, and be profitable and be successful. And it, it becomes self-evident to the general business community that this is the way you need to behave. So a couple of those that are, have been on the market for a while and are, are, are doing really well and continuing to grow is, Seventh generation is a great example of a product that is always innovating to use more sustainable materials, more recycled content, always being transparent about the types of materials they're using in the actual product they're selling you. So, really taking the time to find the products that are leaders and using your dollars to support those. Uh, companies on a more policy related level is I would be asking your local officials, and this starts at city council. It starts at you know, the mayor level. It goes to the governor, goes to your congressperson, goes to your Senator of asking how much are we spending on landfills every year? And what are we doing to fix that? And that will get, The attention of your local political leaders to start looking into this issue of how much money are we spending on landfills and who's it going to, and how can we avoid that that cost? We can avoid that cost by investing in in recycling infrastructure, and we can begin to include the economic value of recycling and circular economy in the policy and political discussions around uh, a more sustainable lifestyle.
0: What I hear you saying with all of those suggestions, and thank you for them, by the way, they were all excellent, but what I hear you saying is that it's on us, it's on me, it's on definitely you, it's on my listeners to rattle the cage. Instead of continuing to do what we've always done, buying the products we've always bought, sitting back at the city council meeting and not raising our hands, it's on us to rattle the cage (laughs) and uh, shout from the rooftops, perhaps, that that we're interested in a different and better way—is that essentially what you're saying?
1: It, it, it's all of the above. Uh, some of us can have a lot of influence because maybe we are in a household with a large family, and uh, there your your purchasing power has has impact. Some of us are uh, retirees who are living at home by ourselves and and maybe have some some free time and can actually show up at city council meetings and say. I have a question. I want to understand why are we spending all of this money on landfills? Shouldn't we be finding ways to invest in recycling programs or local companies that can buy recycled content and and manufacture? So there's something in there for everybody in terms of how you can uh, have uh, impact. The other way you can have impact is in the conversations you have with people. So I I will tell you that I've had many experiences, especially when I was working in the Bloomberg administration where, you know, most people think of New York city as an ultra progressive liberal city. There are pockets of uh, conservative neighborhoods in New York, most notably in Staten Island. And I've had a number of experiences of being in Staten Island. Someone comes up to me while I'm helping roll out some program or I'm giving some talk and uh, they point their finger at my chest and tell me about what they had heard, you know, from, from Tucker Carlson or, or Sean Hannity you know, the night before about how these liberals are spending all of this money with these environmental programs and Bloomberg is trying to do this nanny state. And I kind of, I let them go, go through their litany of, of complaints. And once they're finished with all that, I I tell them uh, that this is actually your choice. There's, there's no, there's no mandate that, you know, if you don't recycle or you don't compost that we're going to fine you or, do anything punitive to you. It's totally your choice. I just want you to understand that when you don't recycle or you don't participate in the curbside organics program, we need to take your da- tax dollars as well as your neighbor's tax dollars and use it to take that material to a landfill someplace in Pennsylvania, South Carolina, and ohio it's It's really your choice as to whether or not you want to be somebody in your neighborhood who helps your your household and your neighbors reduce our tax burden, or you want to be somebody who expects their neighbors to pay for you to throw a bunch of stuff away. It's, it's really your choice. And you can start to see the gears in that person's head start churning of like, wait, I, I don't want to be branded as somebody who is just being lazy and throwing a bunch of stuff away. And then I expect my neighbors to pay for all of it. And so sometimes you can have a lot of different make a big difference by just finding people in your community who maybe today think differently or are getting information from different places and find a way to communicate progressive and sustainable values in a way that ties into their self-interest and and get them Mm -hmm. to change.
0: Well, all I have to say is I would love to be a fly (laughs) in Staten Island during those conversations. That would be something I'd love to observe, but not participate in. (laughs) Uh,
1: You know, if if some documentarian would have been following me around during that time, it would have made for a uh, both a both a a humorous uh, and 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 moving account of uh, changing people's uh, behavior and outlook as uh, it relates to the environment. But uh, and, and a great learning experience and growth experience for me.
0: Well, Ron, tell my listeners where they can find your new book that just came out, I believe last week, was it? The Waste-Free World.
1: Sure. Uh, so The Waste-Free World is available any place you would ordinarily uh, shop for a book. So you can buy it at Amazon or Walmart or Target or Barnes & Noble, but it's also available at uh, most of the uh, major local booksellers as well, if that's of, of interest to you to shop with some of the, the local booksellers. so. Uh, generally wherever you uh, typically buy your books, uh, the way free World is available uh, there and um, I hope people find it both uh, informative uh, and uh, an entertaining read and um, and I look forward to hearing people's feedback as as well about the about the book.
0: Well, quick plug for The Waste Free World. It was definitely informative. Every page I'm like highlighting, my whole copy is highlighted. So thank you for sending me a copy. And thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing both your wisdom and your experience. I really appreciate it.
1: It was great to speak with you today.
0: I so hope you enjoyed my interview with Ron Gonan. Quick reminder, this week's show notes are at mamaminimalist.com forward slash 183 and I am waiting for your questions. So go ahead, call my voicemail, leave me a question and then I will do my absolute best to answer it on air. All the instructions that you need to be able to do that are in this week's show notes. One more time, mamaminimalist.com forward slash 183. On next week's show, we are discussing the long-term effects of the COVID-19 pandemic on disposability. I will see you then. Have an amazing week and take care.